Welcome back, everybody, to the Cinema Condition with your host, filmmaker and creator of the Nerdcore Podcast Network, Raul Alejandro Mendoza. And we are back once again for another movie with another guest as we look at and discuss the themes of 2012's Les Miserables with none other than Alejandra Escutia, Escutia Angulo. And Alejandra hasn't been here for a while, I want to say since episode 13, and I will check that to be completely honest because I probably should have done that, but yeah, it's been, a, it's been a long time since she's been here, and I'm really, really happy to have her back because I really, really enjoyed the Inglorious Bastards episode that we did, and I think that it was an incredible episode, and we had a lot of fun, but I'm going to stop talking, I'm going to actually let her introduce herself again, so... Alejandra, go ahead and um, and tell the people. Well, reintroduce yourself to the people who weren't, who didn't, who don't, who don't know you from episode seven. By the way, that was episode seven. Right. Well, hello. I'm Alejandra. You already know that. Uh, I was here for the episode on Inglorious Bastards, and it was a lot of fun. And hopefully, this time it will be a more um, a less noisy episode from my part uh, and it is of course one of my big hobbies and passions to talk about musical theater so finally got a chance to do it and I think that's exciting yeah I'm really really excited it's, it had been a really really long time since I've seen this movie and I'm not gonna lie I was kind of apprehensive I was like I, I think I remember seeing I think I remember loving this movie when it came out and I always said, oh, man, I hope it doesn't change because, you know, obviously the conversation has changed on Tom Hooper, Tom Hooper as of late. And I said, oh, man, I really hope that this isn't bad. And just uh, I was pretty apprehensive when I rewatched the film. But I'm glad to say that I'm going to have a really fun time talking with you today about this movie. If the audio would just uh, figure itself out right now. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think. Yeah, I think a lot of people's perceptions changed on Tom Hooper, especially after um, <laughs> the movie that should not be named. Uh, <laughs> the good old cat. Yeah, uh, the cat's film. God, why did he do that? Why would you do that? Anyway, we're, we're not going to talk about that today. No. Thank God. But, yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah, that episode seven. This is the last time you've been here since episode seven. Obviously, um, I'm gonna be real honest here. Uh, I didn't have, uh, I didn't plan for you to come back for for another episode, but we had some slots be taken out, and I said I really, really liked our conversation on Inglorious Bastards, so I wanted to bring you back again. And I'm really happy because I think the movie that we're gonna be discussing today is uh, pretty interesting thematically, and we don't really get to talk a lot about a lot of uh, musical theater in here. Yeah, I know. Why don't you? You know, musical theater is great. <laughs> well, you can't get mad at me. People don't choose the movie. I go by what people choose, okay? I did have somebody who wanted to do a Repo the Genetic I know, I know. Opera, though. Uh, they wanted to do Repo the Genetic Opera, and I said, no, thank you. Not again. Oh, God, that movie, no. Yeah. No. I mean, you know, well, okay. Here's the thing. I get it. I get why people don't like to talk about uh, movie musicals because I feel like there is like um, a really strong stigma around musical theater films um, 
in the sense that the first classical movie musicals, they were like very cheesy, very cheerful and happy and kind of corny and a little dumb and a lot of special effects and technicolor. And I guess nowadays people are not really into that anymore. But um, musical musicals have changed a lot in the course of maybe 40, 40 years, 45 years. And they are a lot more um, deep and profound than they used to be before. Not that they weren't, but they were still, like I said, a little cheesy, but now they are not anymore. Because people have this perception of musicals as being very happy and shiny and beautiful and everything has a happy ending. And a lot of musicals from that time don't have happy endings, but it has increased towards the beginning of the uh, 21st century. So... Yeah, there is a difference. And those are the musicals that I like. You know, not that I don't like the classic ones, but the modern musical is really, for me, where it's at because it touches a lot of different subjects that perhaps older musicals didn't touch on. And I think Les Mis is one of them. So I really love it. Really do. Yeah, I mean, because last time you were here, of course, your movie that you had recommended to people was... uh Dancer in the Dark, which I really believe is one of the prime examples of that, of uh, this new age of musicals that are more, um, they're more, what's the word I'm trying to say here? They're, they're, they're way more pre- preoccupied with, uh, with the nuances and how profound they are than spectacle. Yeah, for sure, because I think in the case of that movie, it's relevant that they are comparing it or at least including in the narrative they are including uh the sound of music right Mm -hmm. so it's a very a huge contrast between dancer in the dark and the sound of music because at the end of the sound of music you get this happy family fighting nazism and just being happy all over and then in dancer in the dark i don't want (laughs) to i don't want to spoil it but it's definitely not that it's pretty pretty tough to watch and that's why i love it you know, yeah, I yeah. love musicals that make me cry. Oh, yeah, me too. And th- that's why musicals like this, like, you know, I also have a sw- sweet spot in my heart for, you know, Moulin Rouge. I love that one. But, you know, when it comes to musicals I really want to discuss on this show, I think about this movie. This one, Dancer in the Dark. Um, I mean, Moulin Rouge just for because I love that movie so much, but... You know, there's a lot more beyond the surface to discuss when it comes to Les Mis than possibly, uh, you know, not the sound of music, but like something else, like like Chicago, maybe Chicago, like you know, you know, Chicago isn't as profound as Les Mis is. Yeah, for sure, and also I think like just in recent times, people are a bit reluctant to the concept of a movie musical because. Many movie adaptations of musicals haven't been as successful as they used to be. And I think Lamis came to sort of break with that. And I think that it really fits with Tom Hooper's style of filmmaking because what we had seen before or what we saw after, like, for example, Danish Girl or The King's Speech, uh, in those movies, you can see that he's really interested in like. Uh, realism, like capturing the realism of a scene, of mm-hmm. um, of emotions and all that sort of thing. And I think, for example, now that you mentioned Moulin Rouge, 
that movie is a whole acid trip. I mean, <laughs> the costumes and the scenes and everything is crazy and shiny and glittery. And it's a full fantasy. But in the case of Les Mis, you don't really get to have that because the story is not about, like, look how happy we are here in France. Like, it's not about that, obviously. It's very different than that. And the stage production captures that. And I think Tom Hooper did a, a, a good job in transposing those things from the stage musical onto the movie. Um, especially in the sets. I think it's a beautifully made movie. I think it looks incredible. Uh, and I think it really, really captures that feeling. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, before we can actually get into this stuff, because we are kind of getting into it a little bit, but, uh, you know, before we go ahead and get into it, I got to ask, like, the most basic ass question. How are you doing and how's uh, quarantine been treating you? Because I haven't talked to you in, like, at least here on the show since episode seven. So it's like a whole last 22 episodes later. So how how have it how has it been over there with you? Oh God! Well, <laughs> that just the was... whole thing. Uh, <laughs> that describes it really well. The whole thing. I've been in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been in my house since March twenty fourth. Uh, so you know, I mean, we're we're hanging on. I think yeah. uh, it's not as messy as it is in other places. <laughs> the USA, <laughs> yeah. um, but other than that, I think we are doing pretty fine. I'll go ahead and take that flag for sure. Uh, but you know, it, it, it's not it, you know, it's mostly Texas, Florida, Arizona, and uh, yeah, the, the three the three stooges, the three big idiots of uh, of the USA that they seem to not want to get their shit together. Yeah, yeah, but uh, you know, yeah, I know, like it's like that that. That Harry Potter meme when he's like, how, how is it that every time something happens, it's always you three and it's just Florida, Arizona and Texas? I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I guess it's just something in the water that they're giving us here in Arizona, uh, in what's it called, Texas, Arizona and Florida. But uh, I'm glad that you're doing well. You know, have you uh, been catching up on any movies as of late? Anything you've been watching that's been kind of taking over the time or has the academics been pretty much pretty much consuming you? Well, back when the semester started, um, I was watching movies because I had the time to do it. Mm -hmm. And I've been watching mostly TV shows. I watched Avatar like five times. Uh, the series, not the movie with the blue people. <laughs> uh, and I really, I really like it. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I, I'm glad that you didn't watch the, what's it called, the... the the, the what's it called the movie with the blue people or the movie from M Night? I'm glad that that wasn't the case because uh, you know I was gonna about to ask you like, oh, hey, no. what kind of cynical person are you that you want to be watching the M Night <laughs> film? Uh, but yeah, no, I'm glad everything is doing well and everyone's doing well over there with you and you're okay. Uh, we have not had the pleasure of introducing you guys to the director known as Tom Hooper, so I need to go ahead and do that. Uh, and I'm hoping that that what's it called that my audio stays well throughout this because I am noticing that it's it's decreasing again. I I think it's Zoom. It's like I've never done Zoom before, and it's always done this before, and it's like doing this right now. It's never done this with Hangouts or Discord. So uh, we'll see what happens, and if it decreases again, I might have to stop the recording here and invite you into my Discord server. That's fine with you. Yeah, that's okay. Okay. All right, so let me go ahead and introduce you guys to the filmmaker known as Tom Hooper. Of course, we know him as the Academy Award, what's it called, a nominated director. I mean, 
you know, you look at this on paper, man, you look at Tom Hooper and, you know, wow. I mean, the man really kind of had himself a big, 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 what's it called? A hype train coming with him since, uh, since 2010 when he, of course, directs the Oscar uh, winning film for Best Picture, uh, The King's Speech. And before that, of course, Cooper was doing a lot of British television shows and uh, a lot of other films in Europe. But it wasn't until the, the, the King's Speech that his name really started to become synonymous with, uh, with, with cinema here. I mean, we were all talking about the King's Speech in 2010. Some people for positive reasons, some people for negative reasons. But I'm not going to go into that. Uh, but, of course, and then in 2012, he makes Les Mis. He makes this film, which becomes the first musical since 2002's Chicago to be nominated for Best Picture. And he gets nominated for Best Director as well. And then, of course, in 2015, he makes, what's it called, The Danish Girl, which I believe to be one of the greatest movies of all time. I think it's an incredibly well-made film. And it's a film that never fails to absolutely crush my heart. And it's, it's such an incredible movie. But then his, uh, he also goes on in 2019 to do two episodes of his Dark Materials for HBO. Really good show. And then he makes Cats. And that's where we'll go ahead and stop. Because, you know, he also gets two Golden Raspberry Awards for Worst Director and Worst Screenplay. So yeah, that's uh, that's that's definitely quite the career for uh, for Tom Hooper, Tom Hooper. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I mean, how do you how do you fuck up so bad <laughs> that you are like <laughs> peaking? You are you're reaching up, and then all of a sudden you say, "Hey, we should make a cats movie," and then you go ahead and make it. And not only that. <laughs> But also you watch the whole thing when it's done and you say, yeah, this will go on theaters. Yeah, of course. People will watch it and they won't think it's weird or creepy that cats have human faces. No one's going to think about that. <laughs> Release the butthole cut, right? Release the butthole cut. <laughs> oh, God. But yeah, this this is quite the, the career for Tom Hooper. Uh, we were having a conversation that, well, yo, where does Tom Hooper go after this? Like, really? Like, what? How do you recover from directing Cats? But we're not here to talk about Cats. We're here to talk about Les Mis. But yeah, I mean, Tom Hooper at 2015, when he directs The Danish Girl, I mean, he has quite the career behind him. And you really do kind of start seeing him prominent in, in the way that, wow, like this guy can really do no wrong. I mean, he's given us three really, really good movies. And two of those movies are Best Picture nominees and one is a winner. So, I mean, the conversation around Tom Hooper was huge. Until, of course, <laughs> but yeah, we're going to go ahead and get into this and we're going to talk about the Les Miserables 2012 and let's go ahead and get into this, my friends. So Les Mis is a musical film here and uh, I'm, I'm not going to try to, you know, go off exactly by what, you know, Wikipedia says because I try to, you know, go off what. I, what's it called? Uh, general information, right? Uh, musical historical period film. And I'm glad that they put it here. This film is an epic. Uh, it's, it's probably an epic in the most modern sense that we can think about that word when it comes to filmmaking because this film is so grand in scale. Like, those set pieces are incredible. Like, 
you have no idea how surprised I was to find out that this was a 61 million budget. This looks like 100 to 150. Yeah, I mean, the sets are incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're incredible. And uh, you're always seeing the scope of the film throughout this. You're just like, wow, how, 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 how big does this get? And, you know, every scene seems to kind of keep bringing it and bringing it and bringing it to the table. And you're like, wow, like, crap, like, it's, it's, it's getting even better and even better here. Um, so, yeah, this film is based on the novel. Which was that? Which what's it called? Led to the musical adaptation, uh, of course, by the same name, and it stars none other than our beautiful Wolverine, right? Hugh Jackman, uh, Russell Crowe, Anne Hathaway, Amanda Seyfried, Eddie Redmayne, Helena Bonham Carter, and Sacha Baron Cohen. You have no idea how great it was to see Sacha in there, and I was like. Oh, why do I just automatically see your face and I want to laugh because of Borat and all those silly movies he's made? I know. I mean, and it's not the first musical he's been in. Mm -hmm. He was in the Sweeney Todd adaptation by Tim Burton. Mm -hmm. And I was very surprised to find that he actually did get like music and vocal training back before he was an actor and then he got to be in Sweeney Todd and then now here in Lemis. And I had totally forgotten that he was in Lemis until like a while ago when I watched it again and I was like, oh yeah, he is in this thing. And I love him so much. I love that they casted him as this particular character that is just obviously the comic relief part mm -hmm. of the show, but also has a very sort of dark part to his um to his actions and his behavior. And I really love that. Yeah, so um, I don't know if you knew this, but he was actually supposed to be um, Freddie Mercury in Bo Bo in Bo Rap in Bohemian Rhapsody. But oh yeah, yeah. Sadly, uh, what's it called? He didn't in, uh, in, he didn't like the whole direction that they were going to take the film, and I'm kind of glad because you know him having to work with Brian Singer was probably going to be a pain in the ass, like it was for uh, for um, what's his name, Rami Malek. So I was. Automatically, when I heard about that, I was like, you know, why do I feel like I've heard him before, like singing and stuff? And I was, and then I, you know, watched this movie, and I'm like, oh, this is where he was at. That I remember him. I, I don't think I ever watched Sweeney Todd. I don't remember too well, but I know that this one, I was like, oh yeah, he was in this, and I was just laughing the whole time because I was like, I'm imagining Borat, Ali G, uh, Bruno, and all those uh, silly stuff he's done, but also like being so amazed by his, by his. Uh, by his range and his vocal performances. Yeah, he was really good in it. And also, I think that whole scene where he's introduced, I, I find it very funny because it's just, it's it's a mess, a mess of things. And you can see him like pickpocketing here and there and then just hiding everything in a back room somewhere. And they have like classification of things. They have like a bucket for like glasses and eyes and and things. And yeah. I, I find that I find it really, really funny. I the way that it's um uh that the the inn is constructed and portrayed in the film, I, I feel like it's really I wanna say accurate. Um mm -hmm. uh, because for example like if you see that in the stage musical is just obviously in the stage and it has just I don't know, chairs and tables and stuff. But here you are moving throughout all the rooms of the place and you're seeing how he goes around into everyone's lives, picking up things and robbing them. And I find that really, really funny. 
It's hilarious. And uh, I, I got to say, that's something that uh, this time around, I was able to, you know, appreciate more. I was like, wow, I can't believe he, what's it called? Uh, like he was in this. And I was just, I was just so happy to see him. Like my, my, my eyes usually flare up when I see, uh, when I see Sacha Baron Cohen, whether it's like, you know, his old films or like, who is America doing his stuff on there with Showtime. So I was really happy. But uh, yeah, I want to say, you know, I, I, I'm going to say that I'm definitely not going to pronounce these names correctly. So you are the one who understands that you know how to pronounce these names a lot better than I do. So, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Um, Hugh Jackman plays Jean Valien, right? Uh, Valjean, yeah. Valjean, yeah. So this film starts up in 1815, but most of the film is in the backdrop of the uh, Rebellion of 1832, which really does start the pavement for the uh, for the revolution in France. Uh, and I gotta say that just kind of what's it called makes things uh, a lot more interesting when you're looking at this because you know you don't just have these stories of these characters, but these characters are so tied into the period of France at this time with the June Rebellion. So I, that's why I got to really, really, really hand it off to Tom Hooper for being able to, uh, what's it called, adapt this so correctly. Because anybody can just create characters who are just there and not care about the environment in which these characters live. But he does it so where, with so well where he ties it in really well with how the, uh, the book and, and I'm pretty sure the stage musical know how to do it. Yeah, of course. I mean, um, I think... Well, this, the musical really does stray away from the book a little bit because, I mean, the book is like a thousand pages. And of course, you're not going to put everything in because the musical is already three hours long. So for making the movie and making it less than three hours long and still being able to go back to, uh, to the book and to recover certain details. For example, uh, the elephant that is mm -hmm. in this square where the children live Yes. And um, that is a detail that is in the book and it's not in the musical, right? And I'm really glad they went back and recovered that. And also, for example, well, that scene uh, where the army finally gets into the barricade and they kill everyone. And that scene, which, I mean, it it kills me every time I watch oh, it. Yeah. I watch it when uh, Grand Terra and Angel Trust die. And it's uh, Aaron Tveit and George Blatkin. And they are standing there and they died together. And that scene really murders my heart. But it is also going back to the book because in the musical and the stage version is different. Uh, but here they are both together and they die. And uh, <laughs> it's so emotional and I love it so much. And I'm really glad also that the characters, well, the actors went to check out the book and see what their characters were supposed mm -hmm. to be doing. And and they they got closer to the book, I think, than to the stage musical, maybe. Yeah, no, one hundred percent. And I and I really got to give them to that cast and crew for doing this so well. Uh, one of the first things I kind of wanted to talk about, and I think we did get into it a little bit more until a little bit, but uh, I really wanted to highlight the, the barricades, uh, just the whole way that that set was kind of made, and really how uh, you know you really don't get the scope of this movie. Until they get to the barricades and you're like, holy crap. Like they are like, they are, they're making the hell out of these, these sets right here. They're really using it all to their advantage. And, 
It's it's just and everything from even the costume design is just so beautiful and the makeup hairstyling that they've got in there too. Like those those beginning shots, you know, those beginning uh, scenes with uh, with with uh, of course Anne Hathaway and just the costume, the what's it called, the dress that she's wearing is so beautiful and just what's it called, uh, also just the hairstyling, the makeup to look um, to to make um, what's it called, Jean Valien looks so. Uh, so so dirty and rugged and in the beginning it's like like there's just so much care and uh and and just caring and respect for the source material in here that you can really tell that Hooper is doing something that he's making an adaptation that he really respects. Yeah, for sure. Uh I I don't know. I love this movie. It's one of my favorite movies of all time because mm -hmm. precisely of how beautiful it looks. Everything, I mean It's not beautiful in the sense that, oh, everything is gorgeous, but it's so beautifully made that mm -hmm. everything sort of just falls into place. Yeah. And everything is as, exactly as it's supposed to be. Like, uh, it's time period accurate as far as I know. Uh, the mm -hmm. clothes, the hair, the sets, everything is just perfect and incredible as it should be made. Uh, I, I think, and also from what I've seen other people say, and I think, didn't they win like best makeup and mm -hmm. or something like that? Yeah, best I makeup, hairstyling, uh, and uh, best costume design as well. And I best, and I believe best yeah, sound yeah, mixing, best sound mixing. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that makes sense too. But anyway, uh, <laughs> to the visual part of the film i feel it's definitely incredible and um the use of uh the light and the darkness and everything is just really reflecting like an internal journey in the characters that is already also going through um with the with the songs of course so for example in this part where um at the beginning of the movie where Valjean has been caught stealing and the police brings him back and the, the priest, cardinal guy, I don't know what, what is it, Monsignor or something? He yeah. is like, um, yeah, no, I gave them to him. And he gives him even more. And it's like, okay, and you can see light sort of just above Hugh Jackman's face. Mm -hmm. And you can see like, he's very confused, but also he's just literally being... Uh, illuminated you know and I love that and then the next part where he's singing this this song where he has his full meltdown and he decides you know what I'm gonna start a new life and the light the way the light comes in through like this chapel thing where he's in and he's singing and he's singing in front of the the cross and it's so touching and so moving and I really really enjoy how this movie looks because it's just incredible it really embodies what the characters are going through yeah. And, and that's the thing, like you always bring up, like you brought up in the beginning, you know, with musicals, it's always so, there's always this stigma behind it about like, oh, it's probably going to look like pretty crappy. It's going to look cheesy. It's going to be happy and stuff. And like, yes, The Sound of Music is an incredibly visually breathtaking movie. I mean, you every set on The Sound of Music is like well constructed as well. But you never really expect to, or expect in a musical to be like, like an epic like this is, like nothing in this scale. Like you never real, you never, you know, you know, you never expect things to be this grand. I mean, this is on par with sets from, you know, uh, 
Kurosawa's Ren. That's just the first one that comes to my mind. A great Japanese film. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like in awe because I, I've never seen this done before in, in musical before. In musicals before. Yeah, because for example, with Chicago, like um, I feel they really went with the, um, I don't know, with framing the movie in between a stage thing. Like they are not hiding the fact that this was originally meant to be on a stage because they are mixing both the realist aspect of the film, like the dialogue bits and everything uh, with the songs. And you can see the characters actually being at like, in their imagination, they are singing in salons and they are singing in these big performance spaces and they are mixing both. But here, even though they are singing, you see that the reality around them is like very gritty and um, dirty and rugged and tough yeah. everywhere. Uh, like even though, even at the scene, for example, in the factory mm -hmm. uh, where we see Anne Hathaway for the first time, and they are like, yeah, very neat with their uniforms and everything. But then you see the surroundings and it's a very empty room and the walls are like scratched down and it's all very rough and tough. Yeah. And I, I really like that about the environment that, that they're in. Uh, because, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I head in, into a movie where they are, for example, uh, protesting outside the house of this general. And you see that the house is a very luxurious place. But the reality of what's happening outside, the protest and the, uh, the rioting and everything is surrounded by these poor houses that are exactly in the middle of the square, surrounded by a fence. And so they are sort of out of sight, but still there. So, you know, it's like it's still really prevalent that this is not a fantasy world. It's not it's not going to have a happy, bright uh, cheerful ending. It's going to be way more than that. Yeah, and and like I said, like you know, they're, they're like like you're saying, you know, it's like there's people protesting outside in luxurious house, and what's it called? People in, in this luxurious house, and you know, you throughout this film, you're kind of always reminded, like these people are suffering hard. I mean, Fantine, this this woman who what's it called gets kicked out of the covenant, covenant, co covenant, covenant, right? Um, covenant. I don't know how to say it. Um, gets kicked out of it because of her illegitimate, illegitimate child, right? Yeah. And then she resorts to uh, selling her teeth and she becomes a prostitute. And it's like, you know, you're constantly reminded of the weight of this, what's it called? Uh, uh, of this environment in France at the moment and how the people are really suffering and how, you know, poverty is rampant. And it's like, you know, you think that this will end in like its most beautiful fashion ever, but it's not. Even though the film looks so beautifully constructed, the ugliness is right deep inside of it because of the of the society that they're living in at the time. Yeah, of course. And also, well, I mean, I've seen the stage musical um, like three times already, and I feel like they do a good job at capturing that precisely, but because it's stage, of course, they have limitations. Mm -hmm. But here in the movie, where you can just build a set and then go to some other set and do something else, you you have like a wider possibility, I guess, to for portraying these spaces. And the movie does that incredibly well, I feel, because precisely because of that, but also because they have to transmit 
all these things that are happening that are being said through song already. For example, uh, I was thinking uh, in that scene with the prostitutes that there is a bit where they, towards the ending of the song, where they sing in a particular melody and then that same melody is repeated towards the end of the movie where all the women after the barricade was raided and everyone dies, all the women are literally cleaning the blood of the street mm -hmm. and they sing and they sing in the same melody. So we already have like this particular motif in there that is, I don't know, um, maybe, I, because I was thinking about it and I was thinking that maybe it's them reacting to how the men in the world around them behave and it only leaves them sad and even more hopeless than before. Mm -hmm. Because for example, for the prostitutes in the beginning, they are singing, uh, they say like, they have a lot of lovers, but they never stay for long. And that is of course what the, because the, all, all, the whole of the song is sang about men. Yeah, it's like, oh, they come, they do this and then they leave. And then in turning towards the end here, they are also like, they watch their their brothers, their friends dying in the barricade and now they have to clean up their mess and then nothing happened. So I feel like to portray that certain like hopelessness and that sadness of the world that they are being left with behind, I think is great that the scenery and the camera movements and everything is able to portray, especially the, uh, the feeling that the motifs in the music are transmitting. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to continue our conversation on Les Mis when we return from commercial break. But in the meantime, please listen to these wonderful, wonderful commercials made by some wonderful people. And we will see you guys after the break. Hey, I'm Raul Leandro Mendoza, and this is... Jabril Newton. And we are the hosts of High Flyer Radio. Radio. And finally, pro wrestling has come back to the NerdCore podcast feed in the form of a show hosted by Jabril and I. And we talk about everything and anything in the pro wrestling world on Mondays at 3 p.m. Central Standard Time. Nothing's off limits. Whatever you guys want to talk about, it is from AEW... To SmackDown, to Raw, to NXT, nothing's off the table. We can talk about it. We're going to talk all about it. And if you can get it a day early, you should go to the www.patreon.com slash the nerdcore and pledge to the tiers on there so you can get this show and a lot of shows days early before anybody else gets to hear it. But enough talking about it. We'll go ahead and see you there at the Squared Circle. Oh, yeah. Don't tap out. Tune in. Tune in. Hey, it's Ashley from the Gamer Core. You may remember me from such episodes as Big Screen Mess, Mo Money Mo Platforms, and Brad Can Read. Tune in weekly as I blab with my co-hosts Raul the Nerdy Chicano and Brad the Random Germ about the latest news in gaming and gush over what we're playing at the moment. Oh yeah, and we got the deals too. Keep up with the latest deals in gaming and what's happening as I mediate Brad and Raul fighting like a married couple. Will Death Stranding ever come out? Will Cyberpunk 2077 live up to the hype? Is a next-gen worth a $500 console price tag? And has there ever been a movie adaptation of a video game that's been done right? It's all on the GamerCore podcast, everywhere where podcasts are. Hey everyone, my name is Raul Dinari Chicano, and I am the host of The Impert Files. The Impert Files is an interview show brought to you every Thursday on the NerdCore podcast feed. And... 
I interview people such as filmmakers, content creators on YouTube, and podcasters like Colton Geschwander. And if you want to listen to that early, a whole week early, all you got to do is go to the Patreon and pledge to the $1 tier. And if you want to listen to it with the general public, then go to Nerdcore Podcast Feed on anchor.fm slash the Nerdcore. And the case is closed, but it's not classified. See you guys there. Hey guys, this is Brad, a.k.a. Young Yoda. Raul said I had to make an ad, so that's what I'm doing. Um, it's supposed to be for Unstructured, but as you guys know, you can freaking catch me everywhere when it comes to this podcast feed. You can find me on the Nerd Cores, on Gamer Cores, on Nerdy Chicanos sometimes when I get lost. Uh, I mean, but for this particular one, I want you guys to go check out Unstructured. The Raul gave me free reign to do whatever I want to do. I don't know what he was thinking. So go hear me talk about LeBron James and Taco Tuesday, vaping, uh, so many other freaking weird topics that uh, chimichangas, that's a good one. Uh, shout out to Deadpool. And yeah, I, I guess this is the end of the ad. So if you guys want to find me, you can find me all over the place on this uh, podcast feed. Anyways, thank you guys for listening. I love you all. And nerd up. Hello, 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 guys and gals, and you're listening to The Ladies of Nerdcore. I am your host, Daniela Nunez, and along with my amazing co-host, Ashley Garcia, we discuss many things like social impact, pop culture, political realms, and any controversy surrounding the nerdverse. Tune in and listen to us bi-weekly on the Nerdcore podcast feed, and we will love to chat and hear your thoughts on our wonderful show. And thank you again for listening to The Ladies of Nerdcore. What's up, everybody? It is me, Raul, and I'm one of the hosts of the Nerdy Chicano Show. The Nerdy Chicano Show is a comedic show brought to you by Luis and myself, and it comes to you all every Sunday on the Nerdcore podcast feed. You can catch it a day early by becoming a Patreon and supporting us at the $1 tier. And I don't really know how to explain this show other than it's fun. We get to talk about whatever we want, and it helps you move on in the week. So if you want to catch on, if you want to catch the the Nerdy Chicano Show every Sunday at 8 a.m. All you got to do is go to anchor.fm slash the nerdcore, and we'll see you there, baby. Hey, everyone, I'm Raul. And I'm Brad. And we're the hosts of the Nerdcore Podcast, the podcast that talks that nerd. Not on this ad, right? And we come to you every Monday, Tuesday, and Saturday. On the Mondays, we talk the news. That's the box office, the news of the week. And your trailer talk, if there is any. And on Tuesday, we have our theme review. And on Saturday, you have a Saturday morning review, usually movies that have come out in the week or anything we want to talk about. Right, Brett? Exactly. Whatever we want to talk about, this is our show. If you don't like it, then you don't have to listen. We're the flagship show of the Nerdcore podcast feed, and we can be found everywhere you can listen to podcasts like Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, so if you want to talk that nerd stuff with us every Monday, Tuesday, and Saturday, make sure you tune in. And Brad? Young Yoda out. Welcome everybody back from break, and we are back again for our wonderful discussion on the 2012's Les Miserables. And I just want to say thank you guys for listening to those commercials if you did, but if you didn't, remember that you can find all those shows on the Nerdcore podcast feed on anchor.fm slash the Nerdcore those although those shows aren't running at the moment, except for the Game Record just decided to come back and we, we brought it back and we're doing a lot of cool stuff on there. So, you know, make sure you guys are on top of that and listening to that. And hope you guys go and drop a rate and review on Apple on your Apple Podcast page 
or your Stitcher page, but I'm not forcing anybody at the moment to record other shows if they can't because of the pandemic. But, you know, there's still some shows that are running right now. I like the main show and the live show, but yeah, take a shot for every time I said show there. But either way, you know, rate, review, and go check out those episodes on uh, that other feed. The show, this show is also running on that feed, but it's on a uh, delay. So if you're listening on this feed, which is the Cinema Condition feed, you are going to be caught up for the season finale. If you're catching up on the Nerdcore podcast feed, you are really delayed. Like you guys just got episode 22 right now uh, as of this recording day. So you guys want to be listening on this feed. But either way, go and check out those shows. And let's get back into our conversation here. All right, Alejandra. So we're back and we're going to go ahead and do this. And we, I wanted to bring up a conversation because you said, hey, we need to talk about the singing in here. Of course we have to because there's a lot of uh, numbers in here that are just so amazing. Of course, the one day more scene is the my, one of my favorites as well. But uh, my favorite is, of course, the Anne Hathaway uh, song that she does. Uh, I Dreamed a Dream, right? That's the name of the song? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, the singing, you know, uh, I also saw there was a lot of controversy about the singing because, uh, like I said before in the conversation they were having, that they were singing live during the, the filming of, of the movie. And they had to come up with very creative ways maybe of solving issues like for example in that scene where Samantha Barracks is singing on my own and it's raining mm-hmm. and they had microphones around the set to capture her voice and because it was raining they were only capturing the sound of the water falling on the microphones so that wasn't really working and they had to come up with something else in order to record her voice and to make it stand out above the sounds of the rain and I think it's interesting because there, there is a combination of actors in this film. You have the Hollywood actors, you have uh, Hugh Jackman and uh, Hathaway and Amanda Seyfried and Eddie Redmayne. But you also have um, actors that have been trained in musical theater like Samantha Parks and Sacha Baron Cohen. Well, I don't know if he was in musical theater or just singing, but you know. Um, <laughs> professionally trained in singing. And, and Aaron Tveit and... Um, most of the barricade boys, they were, uh, they made their start in musical theater. And that combination is very interesting because you can see the differences in the ways they perform. And for example, Hugh Jackman, because he's like the main figure in this film, I think he is fine. Uh, <laughs> I like his acting. I love Hugh Jackman and I think he's a really nice dude. But his singing is just, I mean, you know, it's not perfect. And <laughs> I, but in the case of this movie, I don't think it had to be perfect. Because, again, the movie is just very emotional, very gritty and rough. And I think it makes sense. Uh, but there are some parts where it doesn't really feel like it should be like that. For example, in the opening numbers, um, where we have Look Down and then um, the hell is the name of the other song? Well, the one he sings after the Monsignor sends him away, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, He is singing from a very deep place of anger and confusion and angst 
emotion, the whole thing. And it makes sense that he's maybe missing some notes or crying while he's singing or doing that kind of thing. But then in that scene in the barricade where everyone is sleeping and he decides that he has to care for Marius and save him. And um, that song is supposed to be like the emotional solo part of that mm -hmm. portion of, of the musical. And it sounds a little odd, <laughs> at least for me, because I have listened to a lot of different productions of the Miss. And I listen to the recordings and I know the voices of these people. But then I listen to Hugh Jackman in the movie and I'm like, oh, man. I mean, it's not awful. It's just fine. And I think for that scene, it had to be a little more than fine. But, you know, and also I feel like people hated uh, Rosencrow and his singing because he sounded a little bit like Kermit. Oh, so I don't usually laugh on this show because not a lot of people make me laugh that hard. But I, <laughs> yeah, he kind of does sound like Kermit. <laughs> oh. I mean, doesn't he? He definitely does. He does. He but the thing is does. that, <laughs> yeah, because for example, like, um, I mean, he has a band, like a rock band or something, some kind of band. Mm -hmm. And he's he's the vocalist in there, so he yeah. he can sing. But the thing is that he can't sing uh, musical theater. And it's a very different thing mm -hmm. because when you train to be a pop singer or a rock singer or a country singer, you have very specific training for that particular genre of music. Mm -hmm. But if you go, and it's the same if you go to sing musical theater. So the fact that Russell Crowe is trained to sing rock does not make him train to sing musical theater, particularly this role that Javert has incredible songs, amazing songs. But then you put Russell Crowe on top of some building singing about stars with his Kermit voice. And then, you know, what's going on with that? Why would you do that? Why would you do that to him? And then you make him sing live. Not only that, but you make him sing live there with not an orchestra to accompany him, but just a pianist playing the track uh, while he sings and then adding the orchestra on top. So you drown out his voice in parts it shouldn't be drowned out. And I find it <laughs> really, really messy, although uh, many people are torn in, uh, about his performance in this movie because, I mean, his singing does sound like Kermit, but it's good Kermit. <laughs> yeah, it's a good Kermit. It's not like a, like a really muffled uh, version of Rainbow Connection, but it's still a it's still good Kermit. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'll, I'll agree with you there. I don't think that Russell Crowe's uh, singing in this film is, the, um, is like the standout. Uh, whereas, you know, some of those kids on this set, uh, on this film are great at singing. Um, fucking Anne Hathaway just blowing it away with hers. Uh, Amanda Seyfried does a pretty pretty good job at it, but you know, Russell Crowe is kind of like, dude, yeah, like this isn't the best. Uh, but yeah, I agree with you with uh, with with Hugh Jackman, and not, and I don't know how uh, how many other roles he's done with musical. But uh, Jackman in here, like, I, it is not the best singing, but I think it does kind of fit the tone of the film and how gritty it needs to be. So that's why I was kind of able to overlook it. Uh, but, you know, 
yeah, I'm going to agree with you on that, that this film, like the singing in here, it had to be, it, it can be excused for it being a little bad, but it, it what's it called? It definitely uh, wouldn't hold up in another one. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Because, for example, um, I don't know. For example, the Phantom of the Opera adaptation, that was a whole other situation. Um, the singing. I mean, they cast uh, Gerard Butler as the Phantom, <laughs> and he's not a he's not a singer, of course. No, no. And they they cast him to play one of the most demanding roles in the world of musical theater, mm -hmm. and they make him scream half of his lines instead of singing them, and then you are just left with a mess. And I think Phantom of the Opera is particularly one of those musicals where you really can't get away with not being a good singer precisely because the point of the film is that these people are good singers so yeah. if you put your butler to scream and grunt his lines and you're it's gonna be a mess which it was and in here i think you can sort of work your way through that and ignore it and yeah. <clears throat> not let it affect the way that you uh, perceive the film for example so yeah and in the case of anne hathaway uh I believe from what I read a while ago that her mother played Fantine in a stage version of the show. And so she learned from there, I assume, how to sing the song properly as it's supposed to be sung on stage. And then she adapted it into her acting because she realized that she couldn't just sing that song and not cry. And that's what she did. And it sounds fine. Uh, because it's not supposed to sound perfect. Oh, no. So I think it works. It works great. And she was really amazing in that movie. And I, I, I like that she just disappears towards like 20 minutes into the film and then comes back in the end. Oh, yeah. Because that scene always breaks me. The final scene is always fantastic. And I love it. Yeah, um, and I, God, I can't remember, remember, what was the name of that one, um, what's it called, the, the what's it called, the, the song where, um, how, with the girl in the rain, what was it again? Uh, on My Own? On My Own, I like that scene a lot, that song was really good, and just her, just the way those emotions are kind of pouring out of this singing, because she, she's really good at it too, and just, it's like coming out, it's like, and like those signs, like, I love him. And it's like, oh, it's just completely kind of tearing you apart inside. And it's just the the genius of the way that they use the singing in this movie. And also just the music, how, how beautifully crafted the orchestral music is. And how it yeah, really feels. It doesn't, it never feels out of place here. Yeah, no, it doesn't. It's specifically because I feel most of it is sung through. So there aren't many dialogues in between mm -hmm. that uh, can maybe throw you out of the loop of the music because everything is incorporated in the songs. And I think that's great. It's a great way to not distract your audience with them thinking, wait, why are they singing? You know, they weren't singing before. Why are they doing it now? So being it sung through, you can get through that and uh, just not distract the people with, with, uh, with that thought, I think. Yeah. God, it had been a really long time since I've seen Phantom of the Opera, but I just, I was like, why'd you have to remind me Gerard Butler was in that? 
I know. I'm yeah. sorry. You're telling but, me, you, you know, I mean, I had to bring him up. It's a good example. It's it's a good example, and it's and it's you're 100 right because, you know, like you're saying, any other any other any other musical these these singers or these actors would you know it feel out of place but right here it does make a difference because of the way that the musical is kind of built around being so gritty and so natural and so very in the moment and that's why that's why i think that you know that's why i love and hathaway's seen so much is because i i don't i don't really see that as like it's something that's like staged like my brain just completely shuts off and i'm like oh, i'm just seeing this woman just absolutely break down in tears and just reminiscing to wanting to be with that person who she loves so much, but at the same time trying to be free from this terrible poverty that just keeps killing her and killing her slowly. It's like, you know, this just this movie just has a way to kind of construct the atmosphere that it has. And I, I think that that's why this movie just works so damn well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also because I think, well, uh, in the musical... She sings that song right after she's fired from the factory. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the foreman kicks her out and she's left there in the street and she sings that song. And then comes the whole other sequences, right? But in here, the changing of the order of that song, like the placement of it and moving yeah. it after, I think it makes a little bit more sense. Oh, it's much more powerful. Yeah, it's definitely way more powerful like this. And I, I really like that they did that. It's a detail that I really, you know, I really clung on to when I watched the film. And I was like, wait, that was in another place. But somehow here it made me cry more than before. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it worked. Yeah, and you said that, uh, you know, that, that Tom Hooper made her sit down on the floor while doing that. When I was like, God, that must be so uncomfortable for her. But at the same time, it makes for like one of the best shots in this film. Yeah, definitely. And also, I think, well, we have to talk about the children in this film because, mm -hmm. damn, I mean, you know, Isabel Allen, she's so cute. And her playing uh, Cosette uh, when she was young, it's so heartbreaking. It's so sad to see her there, like all covered in suits and sweeping the floors. I mean, it's just, it's very sad. And I really like her and I really like her singing. And then... Later on in the film, when um, uh, Daniel Hawthorne comes in and he as uh, Gavroche, and I love him. I love that character, and I love him so much. And mm -hmm. another thing that I found funny is that <laughs> him as sort of the poor kid in the film has a very distinct Cockney accent when no one else does, <laughs> which is uh, a choice, but, you know, a nice one, I think. Oh, it's also a choice to give all of these uh, actors a uh, British accent when they're portraying French French people. So, you know. Yeah, except for Sasha Baron Cohen, who somehow does have a French accent. Yeah, but you know, it's like it's it's stuff that you try to ignore, just like in Star Wars when everybody has a what's it called a British accent up there in space, but they're far away from Britain as possible. But yeah, and, and oh yeah, for sure, yeah. <laughs> He just had to live to ignore these things because they just seem so so silly at, at best. But yeah, and, and these these kids are incredible. And just my heart breaks every single time I had to watch that when he when the kid gets shot multiple times, and you're like, oh crap, no, oh my god, yeah, and just yes, keep crawling and singing, and he's crawling, and boom, boom, and it's like, oh no, and uh, of course the last one they hit. But hits you know him. what? 
What's worse? What's worse? What broke me is when uh, Russell Crowe walks in and after everyone's dead and they have all the bodies lined up on the floor and he sees him, he sees uh, Gavroche on the ground mm -hmm. and he puts his medal on him. And I was at that moment, I was like, oh my God, I was literally bawling my eyes out. I was sobbing. It was terrible, yeah. but I loved it. Yeah, and it's, it's also the, what's called, the, there's just so many moments like that in this movie, just, they're just completely, like, my heart was, uh, what's it called, my heart was really tied up in a knot with, on my own, like, I was just like, I was like, oh my god, just please, please, don't make me cry here, there's just so many moments here that's just so emotionally attaching, that it's, it's, it's such an emotional attachment to you, and it's just incredibly uh, profound and beautiful, the way that it's just crafted, and, uh, you know, this this film, and, I, you know, I didn't have a lot of themes here. I, I think one of the biggest themes that this film kind of brings up is just, uh, you know, this whole idea of compassion and, and how kind of we treat each other and how, you know, sadly the systems that we grow up in are the ones that kind of uh, put us on this idea that we are above people, others. But, you know, these these poor people who are fighting for their freedoms are just, just as uh, important as the people who are living in those luxurious houses basically eating the bread that that those people don't even have the chance to eat. And uh, it's just these people trying to have like some sort of compassion while, while somebody is just bloodthirsty in the background trying to kill uh, Jean Valjean. But, you know, at the end, he like he grows some sort of compassion that he rather not kill him and he just kills himself instead. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the novel is a very philosophical and deep <laughs> work of literature and I think the musical did a good job at uh, transposing those elements from the novel into the show because well yeah like you said we have this element of compassion and how it's related to misery you know mm -hmm. like in how many possible ways can people be miserable like you mm -hmm. can be poor but you can also be poor and evil or you can be not poor but evil and that's still misery so i think it's just all really closely closely related uh to one another and it's also uh shown through the music and the motifs that they use because every character almost every character has a particular motif that they use when something happens like uh uh, for example, in the movie, they did that with Javert standing on like a very high building mm -hmm. and walking uh, over the edge, right? Mm -hmm. And we can see that in Stars where he's just like uh, walking along to the edge of the building and singing about how he's going to do what he's supposed to do and uh, use justice and God and everything. And then mm -hmm. in the in the part where he jumps we see him doing, taking the same steps and thinking about how he's, his entire worldview has been shattered and he doesn't know what he's supposed to do and all he's, he, he thinks he has left is just his life and then he kills himself. So mm -hmm. I think it's, it's a really powerful work and then it really um, translated, it translated really well into the musical. Yeah, it really does. And I, I was like, God, man, a suicide scene has never seemed so beautiful for me because just the way he just throws himself into the ocean, just how beautifully those waves look like crashing into the mountain. It's like, crap, dude. Like, 
Why does this look so beautiful, but it's so sad? Yeah, I know. I, and also, well, I mean, I think I could have done without the crack sound when he hits his head on the thing. Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> I think that's a bit unnecessary, but, you know. Yeah, I think that's completely unnecessary, but, you know, uh, I mean, go off, Tom Hoover, go off. But, yeah, yeah. that that was, uh, there's just that strong feeling of compassion and just uh, this, 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 and it's not just with, uh, with, you know, with how they're treating these people, but also just, you know, uh, Jean Valier taking care of Fatine's Ill- illegitimate child and just, you know, caring for it. And just at that final scene when she's like thanking him so much for what she's done, you know, taking care of that child for her. And it's like, you know, there's just this feeling of like these people who are supposed to be seen as dirty and terrible and, and ugly, you know, they suffer so much, but there's just that there's so much compassion and love in their hearts to just want to do the right thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because, for example, um, the the guys at the barricade, I mean, in the book and also in the musical, they were all like from rich, uh, high class families. They were educated and they knew that they had to do something for others who couldn't. Mm-hmm. So, for example, when we see and that scene in the protest when Marius's grandpa uh, grandpa comes out of the carriage and he's like, "You're bringing shame to our family," and he's like, "Well, I don't care," and he keeps on with uh, with protesting and he gives up on his title because they don't mention it in the show, but he was a baron, so he has a title, and uh, he's giving up his money, he's giving up all that he had previously in order to go and fight for people who. Uh, are less lucky than himself. So I guess it is it is really important for all of them to sort of try and go outside and do something and change something, which I think is one of the reasons why uh, Do You Hear the People Sing is a very popular song at like protests mm-hmm. and stuff. I was watching clips of it being used in like Hong Kong and in other... Um, other places like a lot of Middle Eastern countries. Mm-hmm. So you can really see that people are actually catching on on the, the subject of wanting to do something and going outside and doing it. Yeah, yeah. And just abandoning these, you know, these positions that they have and just being able to go out there and really, you know, using it for good. And I, I, I have seen it, that. That's why I was like, why does this song sound so familiar? Because like I'm telling you, I haven't seen this movie in years, in years. And I was like, wait, I think I was seeing videos from Hong Kong of them singing this song. And I was like, it's just, it's, it's incredible in the way that this, just this kind of holds this universal theme of just, you know, and I know it's so cliche to say, but just doing the right thing. Yeah, of course. I think it's a very um, universal musical in itself i mean i think people like it because they can relate to at least one part of it Mm -hmm. and of course it makes the work of victor hugo more accessible to more people because the book is again very long and it's a little hard to read at parts but the musical i think it's a good adaptation of it and it really embodies the feeling that uh the written work uh has All right. Do you have anything else you want to kind of cover before we go ahead and leave here? Um, okay. Well, I want to say that Eddie Redmayne was amazing in this film. Oh, yeah. And I love him. 
I love him so much. He's, he's, he's incredible. incredible. For uh, someone who didn't really have like singing training, it's amazing. Yeah, he, he's really incredible. And it's also how uh, how he's able to transform with all the, you know, the makeup and the, and the costume. And it's like, I didn't notice. I was like, whoa, wait, 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 wait. Hold on. That's Eddie Redmayne. I was like, wow. But he also, you know, ends up doing such a great job in a Danish girl next. And it's like, you know, Tom Hooper obviously saw something in, in, in Eddie Redmayne to keep working with him. And I was just... I'm, I was so surprised. I think this was the first time I ever watched Eddie. Uh, when I first watched this film in 2012, I think this was like the first time I'd seen Eddie Redmayne. So I was just so, so excited because I was like, you know, who is this guy and why is he so good? And I just wanted to keep going into it and kind of keep uh, watching more of his work. And when Danish Girl comes out, I'm like, God, this guy's incredible. He's, he's amazing. I, and I love his work. So he really does shine so bright in this film. Yeah, he's such an amazing actor. I love him so much. And uh, Linda Bonham Carter, it's also another first musical because she was also in Sweeney Todd. But mm -hmm. again, there the songs were recorded and here she had to sing live, which is obviously much harder for someone who isn't really, you know, a trained singer. So I think she did a pretty amazing job at it too. I, I think she was great and I really loved her playing this role. She was so funny and... Um, And her working with, with Sacha Baron Cohen was incredible. I really loved the two of them. Whenever they were on, on, on screen together, they were all amazing. I love them. Yeah. So that is our conversation on 2012's Les Miserables. And I want to thank you so much for stopping by. Alejandra, it was a lot of fun, even though we had a little bit of a hiccup in the beginning because of the audio, but everything went smoothly and we did such a great job on this. Yes, it was great. Uh, no one really, no one is ever going to know what happened in the beginning with the audio. We're fine. We're It's fine. a secret. It's a secret, right? It's just going to be you and me. That's it. Nobody else knows. But uh, when when Alejandra was here, she did her recommendation and her pick for season two. Uh, we had to do this off air, but I'll go ahead and tell you guys right now because she's back. So uh, In the Heights was sadly, sadly, uh delayed because of COVID and them not being able to finish production. So what happened, what, what happened was that Alejandra's pick for season two would end up becoming her pick for season three. If we even make it to season three at the state of the world right now, I don't know if we make it to, to, to 2021. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So yeah, for sure. in the Heights is see her season three pick, but She ended up picking, and I'll go ahead and let her announce it. She, she already told it to me. Alejandra, tell them what movie you're coming back for season two. Yeah, I picked West Side Story, uh, the original 1962 version. Uh, yeah, so I'm very excited. Again, another musical. You can tell I'm, I'm a nerd. I love musicals, but yeah, it's going to be that. I'm gonna. I'll, I'll let you do all the musicals you want, dude. You're fine. You don't you worry about. It. Look, this this show is more so about the themes and stuff. It doesn't matter if we like the movie or not. But uh, you know, sometimes we get those movies that we're like, I can't not talk about how much I love this movie. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I have a lot of conflicted feelings about West Side Story, but mm -hmm. now that the new uh, the the um, the remake of it is coming out, and it hasn't been canceled yet. <laughs> Yeah. It's coming out in December, I think. Uh, so, you know, hopefully we can get to that 
before the remake comes out so we can have a clean, um, sort of slightly unbiased conversation about the original. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, what's it called? Season two will be starting in about November, guys, and then it will be going on after that. But uh, we've got a lot of uh, episodes uh, planned out. We've got 45 films being chosen for the season, second season, so I'm really excited to see where we go with season two of The Cinema Condition. But uh, as always, uh, I want to tell you guys, go and check out Les Mis on Netflix. It was uploaded there. And uh, I'm really mad because I had to pay for the film to what's it called to, to rent it. And then I just found out today that it was on Netflix. It just got put on Netflix. And I'm like, you gotta be fucking kidding me, dude. Really? You, I could have saved six bucks. But it's all good. You can guys go check it out on Netflix. And I don't know. Have you seen the newest version? The 2019 version? Oh, the series or what? No, Amazon Prime did a uh, Amazon Amazon did a uh, Les Mis, uh What's it called? The film last year. Look, um, twenty nineteen, and I and I know this is gonna take up time here, but uh, I I don't think it's I don't think it's the it's the 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 what's it called the the actual story, but it's kind of adapting it in a different way. Uh, but yeah, it's a St- St- Stefan oh, joined wow. the anti-crime brigade brigade of Montfamille. He meets his new teammates, Chris and Guada, and discovers the tensions between the different groups in the district. Yeah, so um, I don't know what the, I, mean, I haven't watched this. Oh wow, no, no, I've never watched this, and it's on Amazon. I was wondering because I was like, ah, should I watch it? Should I waste my time with this? But uh, you know, I, I mean, if you haven't watched it, I'll probably just wait for your thoughts and then watch it myself. Sure, yeah, because I didn't know these existed. So thank you. (laughs) I'm going to look that up. Yeah. So with that being said, Alejandra, do you mind uh, telling them where they can find you? Um, (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I have Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I mean, we already gave them out last time and it was a whole thing to spell them out. So can can we just put them on the description somewhere or yeah. uh you know a l e leave it as a mystery yeah a l e c a l l m e p e z z a right yep there we go i like call me peza so go and check it out uh, and go and follow her she's an incredible person and she's got some she loves movies so much just like everybody here on this uh, on this podcast and we will see her for next season when she does West Side Story, but uh, Alejandra, I hope you enjoyed your time on the cinema condition. I did. Thank you. Yeah. And for somebody who's done this only her second time, I got to say that you are a natural. Yeah, I love talking. So, you know, I don't really have a problem with that. <laughs> I know. I know. We. That's why I'm pretty sure this episode could have been longer. But, uh, you know, yeah, we, we you got two big chatterboxes here. But uh, we will go ahead and see you guys next week when we finally conclude season one of The Cinema Condition when we invite my friend and fellow cinephile, AK, to discuss Martin Scorsese's controversial 1988 film, The Last Temptation of Christ. We'll see you guys next week. <laughs>